it's surprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest escapes these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my team. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And this show is brought to you by OS First. Love this sock company. They're also a compression company. They are so many things to so many people, and I'm just a huge fan of theirs. So I you, I rock all of their running socks pretty much all the time. <laughs> They're super comfortable. They got the merino wool that I love. They also have the thinner socks for performance and for a big thing for them is also the compression sleeves. So these compression sleeves are absolutely phenomenal. You got the calf sleeves that a lot of people love. I enjoy them as well, especially when it's that in-between temperature. Also, the knee sleeve. So I've been rocking the knee sleeve. I hurt my knee doing something really stupid around the house. And the knee support is absolutely fantastic. It's also not super heavy and cumbersome. In fact, it did such a good job that I actually I actually ran too much on my injured knee, so I have to like take a little bit of a break. Part of the reason was this sleeve was so good. It provided so much support that when I was running, I felt like, wow, my knee is really getting better. I was kind of fooling myself a little bit. It was that little, little self-delusion going into that one, but it really just brings home the point. They are super supportive, but not cumbersome, and I really enjoy that about OS First. Also, they are completely dedicated to low local independent running store. So you can head up to your local place today, go find out more about OS First, or if you want to shop online, you can do so at osfirst.com. That's O-S-1-S-T, osfirst.com, and use code rambling to save a little dough. So today's episode is with Kim Ermaza. Kim is someone who, man, so I can really relate to. She had a marathon experience recently where she absolutely crushed the training. It was a unbelievable joy to watch her week after week crushing this training. And then she goes into the marathon and she just did not have the race that she was expecting to have. Now that sounds like kind of a bummer, but so many of us can relate to that. And I talked to her a few days after the race ended and it was interesting to hear her talk about what happened, why it happened, how weather affected it, and just how she was dealing with that. Because this is somebody who has you know, been a part of the athletic scene for a while because she's a physical therapist and works with athletes all the time. Um, and in a variety of different capacities as a coach and in the PT world. And with that said, she also has this part of her where she wasn't living that healthy lifestyle, that active lifestyle on the side. So she was kind of one foot in, one foot out. A few years ago, she made the decision to finally go full-fledged on the athletic side, and this made all the difference for her in a lot of ways. So we dive into all of that in this episode, and I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Kim Ermaza. Hello, Kim, and welcome to the show. Hey, Matt, what's going on? Kim, I'm excited to chat with you. I've been following along in your training for a while. I'll tell you what, you put in an unbelievable training block. You had a half marathon PR a few months ago leading into the, the Miami A1A marathon. And you know, we've been scheduling this for a while now uh, for her after marathon day. And I'm so excited <laughs> to get you on to chat because you were doing amazing things during that training block and just your the past few years just how you've gotten into endurance sports is super interesting i know you're coming off a, a marathon that did not go the way you'd expect the way you expected it to go but 
even that um, can be a really interesting conversation because so many people have races like that, um, including the host. <laughs> So many races <laughs> like that. Uh, so I'm excited to talk to you about that as well. So thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. Um, and I'm just, I'm just ready to share my experiences. Yeah. I'll tell you what you had some of the more like mammoth sessions I've seen getting ready for a marathon. I mean, you and your coach dialed up some really big days. <laughs> Huge, tough days where if someone just came across your, say, your Instagram feed or wherever you're posting some of your workouts, they'd be like, wow, this lady must have been doing this for a while. These sessions are legit. However, that isn't really the case. So how do you give people kind of like the, the 411 on where I'm basically like you're a little bit of your athletic background and when endurance sports started getting into the mix? Um, this is actually a really interesting question. I've, I get this question a lot and I feel like this is probably the perfect opportunity to share something that I haven't really shared with many people of why I got into endurance sports. Um, growing up, I was always pretty active. Um, I actually grew up, uh, doing martial arts, um, and playing basketball, playing tennis. Um, I was always an active kid all through high school and most of college. And then, um, you know, after I graduated college, life got in the way and I kind of dropped sports, was in and out of the gym. And probably in my mid-20s, um, I completely stopped working out. Um, didn't go to the gym. I just found myself going to bars, eating junk, and got into this toxic cycle of literally just eating and drinking, eating and drinking. And it got to the point of where I developed a really bad drinking habit. And it was to the point where maybe I felt like I was in a denial of that I had a an alcohol problem. You know, I always thought to myself, you know, people drink, like, it's no big deal. Like, people go out to bars, it's no big deal. Until, you know, I started to get into trouble and really started to realize, like, it was more than just going out to have fun. Like, I had, I had an actual problem. Um, and it took me to a really dark place. I was overweight. I was actually, you know, like based on my BMI, I was almost obese. Um, a lot of people really don't believe that because <laughs> I don't know, I guess my clothes hit it well, but you know, like I was super unhealthy and I may have seemed happy on the outside, but inside it was, you know, like I, I was in like a really deep, dark place where I didn't really know who I was anymore. And it wasn't until maybe... Um, that cycle continued for probably two years and it wasn't until, um, one of my coworkers had actually invited me out to do a 5k and granted, you know, like I've run here and there, but I was never really an endurance athlete. I never ran to compete. I never ran to enter in races, but I just said, heck, might as well give it a shot, right? Like what's the worst it could be? Um, so I entered the 5k and you know, that really opened up my eyes to how welcoming the running community was and how welcoming endurance sports was. And one thing led to another and I signed up for my next race. And it, I didn't really realize wh how or what endurance sports played in my life until I started, you know, diving deeper into longer races. 
And I found myself signing up for my first triathlon or I'm sorry, not triathlon, duathlon. I hate swimming, but I'm actually <laughs> registered to uh, compete in a half Ironman soon. But I just started swimming, but I actually hate swimming. Um, yeah, so just I did a couple duathlon. months away, man. I mean, the big thing is in Miami, so you have some access to water. Or, or, I mean, right. my goodness. Right. And um, um, so I, I found myself and I signed up for um, a half iron duathlon um, literally within the first year of starting of my first 5K. And it was at that point where I realized that endurance sports took me to the same dark place that I was. And at the end of the day, no matter at the end of the day, if you keep putting one foot in front of the other or each day, you know, you each day, like you take a step forward and you realize that that darkness is never, never lasts. Like it doesn't last forever. And there's always going to be a light at the end of the tunnel. And as much as in that present moment, you feel like you're stuck there. If you just keep going forward, you're going to see the light. And that's kind of how I got into endurance sports. Like it, it just always kept me it and always uh, kept taking me back to that dark place that I was in. And I've always just learned how to fight through it. And now it's, it's, you know, endurance sports really saved my life. <laughs> That's kind of like where my athletic background was. So what made you become attracted to, to entering that headspace time and time again within training and then potentially even within racing, um, as opposed to trying to get as far away from that feeling as you possibly could? Um, I don't know. I, I honestly, that's really a good question. Nobody really, nobody has ever asked me that question before. Um, I don't know. It's almost like I had something to prove to myself, you know, like I entered endurance sports because I felt like I owed myself everything that my past had taken for granted. You know, it's like in the past I drank, you know, I was actually a smoker too. I smoked. Um, I just did everything I could that would just hide whatever I was feeling. And I, I wasn't really in so in tune with myself to really understand why I was doing the habits that I was doing. Um, but endurance sports just takes me there. And I just know that it, it just gives me some strength to know that if I keep pushing on that at the end of the day, I'm going to cross that finish line. Now, had you already studied um, to be an athletic trainer at Nova Southeastern before that time, or did that happen afterwards? Uh, this is all afterwards. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so when you were going through, you know, those, you know, depressive periods, like I said, you were depressed, but just like that, you know, that, that depressive feeling of just kind of like, you know, everything that you described, like that darkness feeling and just, you know, life just seems more constricted um, in what you were up to. What about, did you have basically any connection to athletics at all at that point? Like you were, ha you were an active kid, as you mentioned, you had a lot of stuff going on. Um, so it wasn't that far removed from, from where you were in your life. Like, do you feel like you would have potentially gone back to athletics if maybe your friends hadn't reached out to you? Or was it simply like that invitation came like at the right time? Like maybe you'd received other invitations before and you just hadn't acted on them. Like what, what about that moment in your life when your friend's like, Hey, come do a 5k with me. Why was that the paradigm shifting moment as opposed to maybe something happening earlier or something like that? That's a good question too. You know, I had just started really getting into a lot of trouble. Like I just found myself getting into businesses that I shouldn't be getting into. Um, 
And I just couldn't understand why. And, you know, like I would have friends that would pull me aside and tell me about my problem. And I was always in denial, like, no, nah, like, I'm okay. Like, I don't drink like that. But everybody knew, you know, like everybody knew, like I was always the girl who went out and was the life of the party, always had a good time, but couldn't control herself. And I guess that moment when my friend said, or my coworker, you know, she was like, come do this 5k with me. That was just, I guess, my godsend, that opportune moment to say, like, how's that going to hurt? You know? And where were you? You said this was a coworker. So where were you working at the time? Um, at a high school where I'm still working at now. Gotcha. So were you, so what was your role at high school? Um, athletic trainer. Oh, okay. All right. So I, I asked the question incorrectly before. So you, so you had gone through your athletic training, you know, degree and all of that. And, you know, prior to falling into, you know, the, your trouble with alcohol and, 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 and all of that. So what was that like in terms of that dichotomy? So like you're working with athletes every day, you studied athletic training. So you're well-versed in this and yet you were living. So you basically on one side, you're like teaching and preaching a healthy lifestyle, being proactive with injury and recovery and all of that to the athletes that you're working with day to day. And then you're living this lifestyle, which from a health perspective was kind of on the other end of the spectrum that you're preaching during the day. What was that like for you? I don't know. It, it was really interesting. Like, to be honest, it was almost like I was lying to everybody, you know, um, I was lying to myself. I, I was just lying to everybody. I put on this facade that I was, you know, this all good you know all this all good almighty person that you know will patch up an ankle will do this will do that will give you all the tips of how to recover and all the tips of how to eat well but here I was after a game going to a bar eating a burger and drinking three beers you know and it was something that I wasn't proud of and it made you know it took some time for me to realize it because like I said I was in complete denial of it um, and it really took some time for me to realize that I needed to make a change before my life completely went in a downward spiral. Then you all of a sudden start down that path. So what was it like getting back into athletics after this kind of like this uh, this significant period of time off from from competing and training and racing? You know, it was it was different, you know, like I was a little bit insecure at first. I um, I started going back to the gym maybe three or four times a week, uh, lifting. Um, I actually couldn't even run a mile like it was it was ungodly painful to run. Um, I remember I remember so vividly um, going into 24 hour fitness and I, I would just hop on the treadmill as a warm up because I, I love to lift like I didn't really like running like I do now um, in the past. But I would just go on the treadmill for like 10, 15 minutes just to try to get some blood flowing. And I remember I set the treadmill to like um, to like 5.5 miles per hour, which is what, like maybe like an 11 minute mile or something like that. And I remember I couldn't even run half of that. Um, my back was aching. I was completely out of breath. And, you know, like it was a wake up call because I remember back in the day, like when I was younger, I, I would be able to do that no problem. And then here I am. I think I was about 26. Yeah, I was about 25 or 26 at that point. And I couldn't even run half a mile at an 11 minute pace, you know, or not maybe even a quarter of a mile. Um, so it was definitely a little bit intimidating. But, um, you know, I, I eventually start to make progress um, day by day, month by month, um, until 
I really found endurance sports uh, maybe two years later. All right. So that's one of those things where I always wonder is it can be really, you know, it's a, a shaping moment for people and not a moment per se. It's more, you know, the length of time is longer than that. But this period of time where someone's getting either back into fitness or they're trying it for the first time. Um, so you're, you're getting back into it. It's, as you mentioned, like you're struggling on the run, like the lifting's going fine, but like really like the, the, the aerobic stuff is not, you know, it's not like hand in glove for you. It was no. not this natural fit. So, with, I mean, this really begs the question, what made you stick with it? Because so many people struggle at that point, right? They struggle with like, well, maybe this isn't for me or like, hey, is it worth it? Or, you know, I don't need to do this or whatever, you know, justifications or feelings or whatever can stop people or slow people down. Like for you, obviously, at some certain points, like you shifted from first gear to second gear to third gear and you really ramped it up. But what made you keep going when things weren't, you know, looking great in the beginning? Um, at the end of the day, I really start to realize that a lot of people really don't care about anything or anybody else but themselves. Um, I know that sounds a little bit harsh to say, but it's like when you go into the gym, um, you know, at first it's intimidating. You're just like, you see all these machines, you see all these, you know, good looking people, you see all these fit people and you're afraid of doing something wrong. You're afraid of being criticized. You're afraid of being judged. But at the end of the day, when you go into those places, most of those people are so into their own routine. They're so into their own whatever they have planned that nobody's really paying attention to you. And you start to lose sight of paying attention to yourself because you're so concerned about what everybody else is thinking about. And that's kind of like what I started to think about. I go into the gym. I said, hey, I'm here too. You know, I'm here to make a change. I'm here to do better. Let me do me. I don't care what people have to say. Um, at the end of the day, I know that when I'm going to the gym, I'm not paying attention to anybody else anymore. I'm paying attention to me. And that's kind of what made me stick with it. And then sooner or later, you know, you may not always see the results right away, but people start commenting like, oh, well, you know, like you start to look better, like, oh, you look great. You look you look like this. You look like that. Or, you know, you're, you're moving better. Um, you're sleeping better. Like you start to notice these little compounding things. And that's just what made me really stick with it. Yeah, that's, you know, you bring up some great points uh, along those lines. And it, I wonder how, um, you know, you're a black belt, right? So when, if you, when you're martial arts training as a young kid, you're a black belt. Do you feel like you gained some, you know, either willpower or focus or things along those lines that helped you with your return to athletics later in life? Oh, no, for sure. Um, you know, martial arts was a huge part of my life. Um, I did martial arts from when I was seven years old. Um, I got my black belt when I was uh, 17 and then I stuck with it for maybe another two or three years until life really got in the way and I couldn't continue practicing anymore. But, you know, martial arts teaches you discipline day in and day out. It's, you know, when sensei says, you know, close your eyes, kiss, gay, don't move. You better not move, <laughs> you know? Um, so and it it just gave you routine, you know, like you you go in the dojo, you bow, you do your you you do your you your routine, and and it teaches you a lot of patience. And I think that's what a lot of people lack right now, you know. Like I remember when I was in martial arts, my sensei made a rule that nobody is to be a black belt until they're at least sixteen years old. 
because a black belt was a responsibility. He was just like, what makes sense for a seven or eight year old to be carrying that responsibility? You know, and just imagine if you're a young kid, you start at six or seven, that's 10 years that you have to wait for you to receive your black belt. And it's more so along the lines of, are you willing to put in the work and are you willing to to really hone in on the craft for another 10 years to receive that, to receive your belt. And, you know, I carry that through uh, the rest of my life. It's like, okay, aside from the dark points or the dark um, area that I was in, like when I finally go back to the gym, I realized like it really has that I really have to hone in on that patience that uh, martial arts taught me. So what made you, so this this is this is you know enlightening for me. So so you're in there, you're doing this for for a decade, right? Um, building yourself up, working to get to that black belt. That's a lot of time, and it's in a lot of time during a period in someone's life where there can be so many changes, there can be so many new things going on, and shifting friend groups, and you know, like it, there could just be a lot of stuff, and that can draw someone's attention away from a sport that requires so much dedication that's a year round endeavor. This isn't like a seasonal activity. Um, you know, I was talking, uh, you know, to Ingrid Walters, uh, you know, about this, about her swimming background, like, Hey, this is year round for a lot of years. And for a kid that can be demanding. So I wonder like, what was it? What was the draw for you to stick with it? And keep improving your craft and, and taking these steps. Like what were what were the things that motivated you either internally and or externally that kept you coming back for to martial arts? <laughs> I remember before starting, like I would bug my mom. Um <laughs> I wanted to start martial arts after watching Wulan. <laughs> Nice. And <laughs> I remember, yeah, I remember this so vividly. I, I watched Mulan and I remember like the day after I, I begged my mom, like, mom, mom, I want to do karate. I want to do karate. And <laughs> I would tug at her every day. And there was a, the, the martial arts school that I was going to was actually just, you know, a few blocks away. And I was like, I want to sign up there. I want to sign up there. And, you know, she eventually took me and, you know, I had a blast as a kid. You know, you don't really think about those things when you're six or seven. You just go in, you make friends, you have you have fun, you learn all these new forms, you get to show them off in school. Like, hey, guys, look, I can do like a front kick. I could do this. I could do that until things start to get real. You know, like once you get promoted to your belt, to your new belts and then, you know, um, and then you start to get older. And what really made me stick with it was why was I gonna, you know, like, for example, like I was for in karate, uh, there's different belts. And before black belt, you're a brown belt. I was a brown belt for four years. Because like I said, my sensei wouldn't promote you to a black belt until you're at least 16. So I got my brown belt when I was, I got my black belt when I was 17. So I got my brown, brown belt when I was 13. So I was a brown belt for four years until my sensei decided I was ready to take on the black belt test. And it just made me, you know, like I stuck with it because I I was thinking to myself, why would I quit now when this was literally a part of my life for almost, you know, nine, eight or nine years at that point? Was I really just going to throw it away to just be a brown belt? Um, so, you know, I told myself and I, I did quit a few times. Like there were periods of times where I didn't show up for two months, three months, four months, but I still found myself coming back because I just realized, why am I going to throw this away when this was a big part of my life? 
I felt like I let my sensei down. I felt like, you know, I was letting myself down. And then once I got the black belt, it was, you know, just a big sigh of relief. Like I really did this. Now, is that an achievement? And I I feel this is like this, the kind of achievement that can be so important when someone's, you know, doing basically any kind of endeavor, but especially endurance sports later on, uh, this achievement of like not only doing well day to day, week to week, month to month, but stacking these years on top of each other. Do you think back to that um, as you're now like embarking on your endurance athletic career? Because obviously you've already done really well, especially in duathlon. I mean, my goodness. But you're still like a baby compared to like the amount of time you put into this other endeavor. It's like you've had like already at such like a young age, like these like two very distinct parts of your athletic journey. Oh, no, for sure. I mean, uh, now I definitely think about it, you know, um, endurance sports teaches you a lot of patience. And I take the patience I've learned with martial arts into endurance sports um, because, you know, we, we live in a society now where instant gratification is, is, you know, is, I guess, what people like to be, to be happy, you know, instant gratification, Instagram, here's a like, Facebook, here's a like, uh, we take a photo, like how many people are going to comment, you know, like we want everything right now, right now. Um, you know, we sign up for, you know, we want to do a race and we don't realize that it's going to take us four months to prepare for it. Um, you know, like we always want the next best thing, but don't realize that those things really take a lot of time. And I've definitely taken that experience from karate, especially being a brown belt for four years, um, definitely into um, endurance sports now. Hey, everybody. Do you want to save money on your grocery bill? Well, every plate is 25% cheaper than grocery shopping. Try America's Best Value Meal Kit for planning dinners today. I love every plate for a couple of different reasons. First of all, I just love having things in my kitchen, especially in my refrigerator, that isn't the same old thing that I do every single week. Also, getting things that aren't too adventurous that my kids are definitely going to eat. Obviously, you're never going to beat that a thousand with that. But with every plate, my kids have really enjoyed it. And I like the food as well. And it's just not the same stuff every single week, which can get tiring. So you can choose between 17 recipes that change each week, swap proteins and sides for things that you like, so you can switch up your dinner routine however you want. And that's the key thing. It's however you want. There's so many options, and it's all great stuff, which is also huge. For me, the difference between this and some of the other uh, services in this genre are, first of all, the price. It's absolutely fantastic. We'll get to it in a second. The kinds of meals that are provided, that they're really good, but not too adventurous, have also been a huge thing for me. And now I've been using these more often now that groceries have kind of gone up and the price for every plate has pretty much stayed the same. So try every plate today is $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code RamblingRunner179. That stands for $1.79 per meal. So get started with every plate, like I said, for $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code RamblingRunner179 today. That's up to $104 value. Our next partner has a product that I use literally every day. I started taking Athletic Greens because I heard other podcasters who were really into performance and athletics, people like Rich Roll and Tim Ferriss, who used it all the time. 
And I thought, hey, man, if they're going to use it, then I should too. And I'm so glad that I did. So what's in the stuff? Well, with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, adaptogens, all to help you start your day the right way. The special blend of ingredients support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, your focus, your recovery, literally all the things. I mean, there's too many things for me to list. I actually have to like take a pause during the sentence, uh, but it's it's legit and I'm so glad that I use it. I use it basically because I know that getting my vitamins and minerals from, from foods is probably the best way to do it, but I usually just don't have the kind of diet and make the kind of food choices that's going to put myself in the optimum position. And that's why I take Athletic Greens to make sure that I have everything I need because I know I'm probably not getting it from foods because I just don't quite have the, the discipline or the food choices that I need. And Athletic Greens is there to help me out. And I'm so glad that they are. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash rambling runner. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash rambling runner to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutrition insurance. All right, so after the 5K... You know, you immediately not only start getting, you know, more involved with running, but you also start getting involved with duathlon. And you mentioned this a little bit already. Talk to me about duathlon because it, like, I look back now, I'm looking at your, your bio and, and it's remarkable to me how quickly you took to that sport. So let's just describe what the sport is to people who are maybe more familiar with triathlon, you know, what say some of the typical races are that you run in. And I mean, you compete in from like a distance perspective and how they're segmented and talk to me about you kind of your quick rise in some of these competitions. Cause it really is, uh, it's pretty remarkable to look at. <laughs> uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, duathlon is a run, bike, run. So a triathlon is a swim, bike, run, and duathlon is a run, bike, run. So like I mentioned before, I absolutely hate swimming. I think swimming is so boring and I'm not very good at it, <laughs> but you know, I'm slowly getting better. But, um, duathlon is a run, bike, run. Um, I started it very, uh, it was a really random start to duathlon. I never really planned on it. Um, for some odd reason, I decided one day I woke up and I told myself I want to get a bike. I never really had any intentions of racing, but I just wanted a bike just to get around, to have fun. And so the next day, um, shortly after my birthday, the next <laughs> shortly after my birthday, I went to a local bike shop and I purchased a road bike. And I look on the and, you know, like I was scrolling through Instagram and I look um on the feed and I see an advertisement for a race, which was the max cycle triathlon and duathlon trilogy in Key Biscayne. And I told myself, eh, why not? Let me, let me sign up for it. It'll give me something to train for. It'll give me something to do. Right. And a sprint duathlon is a one mile uh, run followed by a 10 to 12 mile bike, depending on the course and a 5k. At that point, when I had registered, I had no coach. Um, I really had no idea what I was doing. I was just kind of doing my own thing um, until I did eventually meet the coach that I'm with now. Um, and he helped me train for the duathlon. And that experience was awesome. It was a great experience. Um, 
it was a great experience. Um, and then after that first sprint duathlon, I registered for the um, I read, <laughs> I registered for a half iron duathlon. I don't know why I was so crazy. Um, I completely skipped all other distances and went from a sprint to a half iron, which is a two mile run, a 56 mile bike and a 13.1 mile run. And I don't know what really made me decide to finally say, okay, let me pull the trigger and do this race with absolutely no experience in the sport. Um, I'd only run one half marathon, which was a virtual half marathon before registering for that race. Um, but again, I just said, screw it. I owe myself everything that my past took for granted. Let me see where this takes me. And I, and me and my coach, we I made that decision in, I want to say August and the race was in November. Uh, I made that decision late August and that race was in November. So we had just over maybe two and a half to three months to prepare for that race. Um, and that was a whole adventure <laughs> in itself. Um, yeah, that race was a whole adventure in itself. Um, after that half iron race, I did the, I did my first marathon. And then after that, I did another duathlon, which was, um, which is an Olympic duathlon. And Olympic distance is a, uh, I think it's a one mile, no, yeah, it's a one mile run, a 25 mile bike and a 10K. And those are, I've done three duathlons so far. So what is your strength in duathlon? Um, I would say running. Gotcha. So how how did it work on the bike for you? So were you quick to get get used to the bike or you know you you mentioned before that you were a big fan of listening did some of that leg strength translate well to the bike how did it work um in terms of navigating that process oh the bike was really different you know i never really realized how technical riding a bike was <laughs> um you know like i guess in miami it's a little bit different because we're completely flat we don't necessarily have any hills or elevation we have maybe one or two bridges, but that's nothing compared to what other people have and, you know, other people experience. Um, but I never really realized how technical it was to ride a bike, figuring out what, you know, when to switch gears, um, you know, how to pedal, how to find your bike, how to find your cadence. And I'm still learning that now. Like, even to this day, I don't cycle with a power meter. Um, I still, you know, I just cycle based on effort. Um, but I'm still finding my way about um, navigating the bike. Um, but it's very different because with duathlon and triathlon, um, you have the choice of riding either a road bike or a tri bike. And those are two completely different uh, setups. Um, and it places your bodies in different positions. So right now, like I really enjoy riding my tri bike a little bit more. It feels different getting off of the bike and straight into the run from a tri bike versus a road bike. I'm still really learning the ins and outs. Like, like I'm still such a newbie in the sport. I've only done three. Um, I'm only my, I'm going in my, into my third year of in, endurance sports. So, you know, it's, it's still very new to me. Yes. However, you have some mammoth training days. And I mentioned this in the <laughs> beginning. Um, so what's it like with this ramp up? Like, because you went from, again, like basically starting at zero. Uh, from a fitness perspective, obviously you were strong and you had an athletic background in a lot of ways, but at that moment, you know, 2018 or so, like you weren't, you weren't super active. So now you are really, really active. What's that buildup been like for you in terms of 
I'm not just from a performance perspective. I'm talking more like, you know, injury prevention. I know you're also really active in the gym, you know, from a time perspective and just being able to handle all that you're doing from a workout perspective, because I just get tired watching your workouts, never mind <laughs> competing in them. Um, and, you know, it, it's a wonder to me that you've gotten to this point so quickly. So just what's that buildup been like? Because it does seem um, like a lot really fast and some people can handle that and some people break down. So what, what how were you able to make sure that you weren't in the latter category? Um, to be honest, I'd have to thank strength training for that. I'd really honestly have to thank my background in strength training to allow me to be a little bit more durable and resilient to take on the miles and handle the pounding with the bike and the run. Um, and you know, like as, as an athletic trainer, like, you know, I, I try my best as well to follow what I preach. <laughs> um, you know, I really try to focus on doing some band work to doing some core work, um, just to, just so that I am able to arrive to the finish line healthy. And it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the ramp up because when looking back at it, um, you know, like I was just going through Garmin the other day and looking at my training in, uh, 2020 or 29, I'm sorry, not 2020, 2019. And looking at my training in 2020, it is like two completely different ball games. And, you know, like, I guess you don't really realize how far you've come until you put, you know, until you really visualize and you put two and two together. Um, but I really definitely have to thank strength training for keeping me pretty durable. Yeah, I can imagine. And I've had a lot of people come on the podcast and say something similar. Um, but strength training doesn't just re keep you durable or keep you resilient. It also is like a drain on the resources as well, right? I mean, it's one thing to be like, all right, I'm doing some core work here and it's, you know, nothing too intense. It seems like your lifting sessions, you know, require energy as well. So what do you do um, from a nutrition standpoint or hydration to make sure that you can, you know, you know not compete, that's not the right word, but basically that you can handle this kind of output because again, like I said before, it seems like a lot and <laughs> it's a marvel to me and I want to be able to do, to do this. Uh, so, um, it did. So I just, I just want to kind of learn what, what you, I want to, you know, teach me what you've learned. I like as if I'm one of your clients. Like, what are some <laughs> of the things that you've done maybe, you know, outside of the lifting and the running and the, the, the biking that allow you to, go into all of these modalities with the kind of energy that you have been able to? My top two things I would definitely recommend is keep it simple and eat to perform, not to look good. And that second part really took me a long time because in the past when I had first, you know, transitioned from being completely inactive to finally getting back in the gym, what I was eating, I was trying all these diets. I was trying to, you know, high protein. I was trying um, all these low calorie fad diets just, just to get the weight off. And it works for maybe a week or two, but it's not sustainable. And the only diet that works is the one that you can sustain, right? And that was something that took me some time to learn. Um, and 
one thing too is just to keep it super simple to you know like i i try to eat as much whole foods as possible you know i i do enjoy my snickers and my reese's here and there but i do try to eat as much whole foods as possible and focus on the foods that i know will help me perform because in the end of the day if i can perform well i'll eventually end up looking good anyways <laughs> um so those are my two uh big tips all right so when do you alter do you alter what you're eating so again you mentioned you're you're fueling yourself to perform so do you then alter what you're eating depending on the kind of training you're doing like if say you're say a month ago right you're in peak marathon training you went out into like you know a three hour run and you're doing biking as well like do you does 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 um do you take a proactive approach with the nutrition side and the caloric intake uh, versus maybe more down periods or is it more like this is kind of what my body needs this is, and it's a little bit more standard no matter kind of what the the training schedule looks like I definitely made sure that I took in the nutrients to help me perform and recover like I, I never you know I think a lot of people make the mistake of trying to lose weight in the peak of their season um you know like yes, if, this is if a some, great point yeah. thank you for bringing this up <laughs> no like and that's a big mistake you know like I feel like if if weight loss or let's not even say weight loss because weight loss and fat loss are two completely different things um, you know, somebody can lose weight, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're losing fat. You know, like you don't want to lose muscle mass. Um, so I think, you know, like if you want to change your body composition, if you want to lean down, you know, get leaner for your season, it's best to focus on that in your preseason. You know, once, you know, once your big race is over, once you've had some downtime to recover during the build up to your next race, like right before you start that build up to your next race is when you can start to focus on, okay, maybe I can, you know, get a nutrition coach or get some professional advice or professional consultation of how can I, you know, uh, manage my nutrition so that I can um, perform better. And, you know, decreasing your nutrition in your peak season is just a big mistake. That's just going to lead to injuries. You're not going to have the energy to perform. And I think um, that took me some time to realize too. And I would openly admit that in the beginning, when I first started endurance training, I wasn't fueling nearly enough, you know, like I would go on these two hour runs. I wouldn't really eat before. I wouldn't take nutrition during because I also wanted to lean down, you know, like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a little, I'm a little bit more muscular. Like I'm not a typical, you know, 110 pound, I'm not a little 110 pound runner. Um, so, you know, like I was always a little bit bigger than everybody. So I always want to lean down in hopes of maybe that would get me faster, but slimmer doesn't always equate to speed. Yeah, no, for sure. And then I think the the hard part too, is that you're in a, by, by being involved with, with biking, obviously you're not on a lot of hills and that, that can be, you know, part of the thing too, is that in, in, in cycling culture, like weight is a big deal. Right. Like, and I don't mean like weight, like body weight. I mean, just like anything that weighs anything. <laughs> yep. Right. It's like, like all the bikes have to be slimmed down as much as you can. Like you can't have anything extra on the bike. Like your helmet has to weigh less. Like everything has to be weighed in part because like, if anyone's ever picked up a bike before, you know, like pedaling uphill is a pain in the ass. <laughs> literally. Like anything. <laughs> yeah. Literally, literally and figuratively and anything, um, that, 
on your bike or on your person that can weigh you down is going to make it harder. So it's a little different on flat ground, for sure. It's almost like when you're running, like weight isn't the biggest factor in the world if you're on flat ground for running or biking. But when you're going up hills, it can be a factor. So what's that been like for you taking like that healthy mindset that you just described and making sure that you maintain it even in a sport that can be, you know, if, if people think, running is weight conscious because that's the sport they're in. They're aware of it. Like that's nothing compared to cycling. (laughs) I, you know, like I just really realized that if I don't feel my body properly, I'm not going to be able to hit the certain paces. I'm not going to be able to hit the intensities that my coach prescribes for me to get faster, for me to get fitter. You know, like you can only, you know, you can only run so many easy miles until you're going to eventually need some speed work. You're only going to, you're only going to be able to, you know, ride so many, you know, like so many flat roads until you're eventually going to need the strength to pedal up, up a hill. And, you know, like if I don't have the, you know, like if I don't have the proper nutrients in me, I'm just not going to be able to do that. And when I get onto race day, then what's the point of it all, you know? And then God forbid, if I actually do get injured, and I don't even toe the line because I didn't eat enough. I didn't recover well. I got injured. Then that's on me. All right. So let's talk about your marathon buildup. So you ran your first marathon. What was like a year and a half ago? Uh, just about, yeah. Just, actually, no, just a year ago. Exactly a year ago. Year ago. Okay. So right, right before shutdown, basically. Like last one in. Yeah. Like the last race in. Um, all right. So you ran was it 3.59, almost exactly nine minute pace. Right. Yep. For the marathon. So, you know, first of all, congratulations. Like that's, that's a big achievement for a lot of people. Like first marathon ever and doing it under four hours. It's a big deal. So like that's, that's a big deal. And you have this, you know, you're, you're so super involved with endurance sports right now because you're doing the duathlons, you're building up this aerobic pace, you progress through the year. And then in December, you set a half marathon PR, you run 140. So tell me about what happens kind of like, you know, in December, you're getting ready for Miami A1A. What was the focus for you in your training? And were, what did it feel like to you and your coach, how your training was going, you know, through the winter? Um, it's a very interesting question. Um, as you know, like as with everybody, the race season was just up in the air. Like, you know, nobody really knew what races were going to go on. Um, it, it was almost like, should I even sign up for this race? Because it might end up getting canceled. Um, so I'd actually decided to do the half marathon on a very short notice. Um, I saw the advertisement to do the half marathon maybe six weeks before the race. Um, but luckily, um, we did a, you know, we just did a lot of base miles during the summer. So it was a nice build up to the half marathon to run that 140. And, and then I had seen, um, the advertisement for the Publix A1A. I still hadn't had, I still hadn't registered for the race yet because I didn't know if I was, if, um, a marathon would be on the schedule. But I said, might as well do it. Um, we didn't talk about any goal times until, a month before the A1A marathon, um, which I guess I don't know if, you know, I don't really know if um, a lot of people talk to their coach right away about um, hitting a certain goal time and targeting paces or targeting workouts towards the, um, towards that goal. But me and my coach never spoke about a marathon goal until a month before the A1A marathon. Um, so we just continued. Well, were you on- thinking about a goal? 
So like there's, there's like there's the conversations that we have with our coaches, and then there's the conversations <laughs> sometimes that we have with ourselves. So what was the internal monologue for you at that point? Um, my personal goal that I wanted to do was a 345. I I just knew that I did want to PR, but I wanted to PR. T- I I wanted to hit a marathon in the 340s. So I was I was targeting 345. I didn't mention that at all to my coach. Um, but that was kind of was in my head. I was like, okay, I think a three a three forty five is doable for me, um, especially having run all the base miles during the summer and running the half marathon. I knew that pace felt fairly comfortable. Um, but as the marathon buildup continued after the half, um, after the half, literally, I think the week after the half, I ran twelve miles as like a. I guess a quote unquote recovery, <laughs> recovery run. And then miles just, just quickly ramped up from 15, 16, 18, 20, 20, 20, 21, 18, 18, boom, marathon. And when I'd asked my coach what was a realistic goal, he said 330 and my heart dropped. You know, like I'd always had my eyes set on Boston. Um, I'd always had my heart set on that race. And I just knew that I didn't have the experience. I just felt like I didn't have the experience for me to really pursue that goal just yet. But, you know, I really trusted, you know, what my coach was saying. And based on my half marathon time, you know, like it was possible that I would be able to run a, a 3.30 based on my half marathon time. And you did, how was it, January 17th, you did a three-hour run at like 8.30 pace. Which Correct. is, you know, it was a three hour run. And it's like, wow, like obviously one run doesn't make a training cycle. But I remember being like, wow, this woman's like super fit. Like that's a legit, you know, workout right there. And that was like one of many that were pretty similar, it seemed like. Yep. You know, like all, you know, like I started to build a lot of confidence, like all the runs started to hit 830s, sub 830s. And in those runs, um, my coach has me running like mile, two mile or 5k repeats with recoveries in between. So like I was hitting all those repeats at an eight minute pace and faster. Um, but again, like we never spoke about Boston or we never spoke about a 3:30 marathon just yet. But in the back of my mind, it almost made me think of what is this preparing me for, you know? Yeah, for sure. So what was the weather like uh, during a lot of these training, um, you know, these long runs and a lot of your training through the winter? Miami is very, <laughs> Miami's pretty hot um, compared to everywhere else. But most of our training after the half was probably around the 70s. Um, we were blessed to have a few 50 and 60 degree days, but most of them were probably in the high 60s, low 70s. And what's the dew point for a lot of those? Uh, it depends. Um, for most of the runs, the dew point was probably in the 50s. Okay, so not that humid in the winter. Not that humid in the winter, no. Um, it Miami decided to bring all this humidity probably late. It's February. Probably mid-January was when all the humidity started to come back and the dew points were starting to creep up into the high 60s, low 70s. Oh, yeah, it was pretty rough. But beforehand, like during the half marathon that I ran, the dew point, I believe, was still in the 50s. Yeah, man. Oh, my God. All right. So so right now, I'm like, anyone who's ever like run and really paid attention to dew points, um, it is no joke. I know that the, the, the oftentimes 
the especially in the Northeast, I can't speak to everywhere, the initial inclination is to look at humidity. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think dew point is a um, a better indicator of exactly the kind of like, moisture in the air that can really suck the life out of you as a runner. Um, and there's a lot of different tables for like adjusted times and things like that. And they can all be pretty interesting. But ultimately, like, Dew points are absolutely legit, and it can really, really affect your performance. Like it is, it's a huge, <laughs> huge, um, you know, performance indicator, right? If you're talking about the '70s, you know, you're talking about a major, major increase in time per mile. Like you're talking about, like if it's 70 degrees with a dew point in the '70s, you know, that that could be an extra 30, 40 seconds per mile. And have it feel like, you know, a nine, a nine minute mile can feel like an 820. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, um, get, like the race itself, we're probably going to get into this very shortly, but the race itself, the race start temperature was 77 and the dew point was 73. Oh, good grief. <laughs> right. And like, I'm looking at like, I'm looking at like, like this pace adjustment table right here. And again, it's just a table. Like, what the heck does that mean? You know what I mean? But like they would say that that would be like a five to six percent pace adjustment. You're like, all right, what's a five to six percent pace adjustment? That is like legit. So say for an eight minute miler, that would be roughly 30 seconds per mile. So if you're like, all right, my goal is to run eight minute miles. All of a sudden you have that weather. Then you should add 30 seconds per mile to that. Again, I don't know how much of a factor like those tables play for like people who are, you know, maybe more used to that kind of weather than somebody who isn't. And obviously individuals can handle that kind of weather differently. Like I can't handle it at all, no matter how much I practice in it. Like I am awful with dealing <laughs> with humidity. I don't know our dew points or whatever. No matter like I'll, I'll run all summer in it. It's still going to affect me big time. I have a friend of mine who I ran a lot with growing up who was like the opposite. Yeah, he just didn't, it didn't bother him as much. I remember he moved to, to Tampa and we went for a run after college. And like, it was like noontime, like in August. Oh, God. And he was like, we're going for like an eight mile run. And like, I think it took me four days to recover from this run. Like, oh I think I, I recovered faster <laughs> after marathons than after this run. And he was fine. He like was like, let's go out at night afterwards. And I was like, I'm staying <laughs> on this couch for as long as possible. What, where do you fall in that range? Cause I feel like it can be so individualized. Oh, it, it's so different. You know, like living in South Florida, um, you know, like you just mentioned your experience in Tampa, you really have to be cautious of what time you choose to run. Um, and it's a catch 22 because in the morning it's the most humid. Um, so it's like, okay, you could probably run in five to 10 degree cooler temperatures, but your humidity is still going to be at 90 to 100 percent and the dew point still going to be maybe three to five degrees higher than if you were to run just maybe two or three hours later but then two or three hours later the temperatures are going to creep up 10 degrees um so i'm i'm on that boat of i've been fortunate to be able to tolerate it you know i've i really struggled during the summer um, a lot of my training runs were actually done indoors because the heat the heat in South Florida and Miami is just unbearable in the summer. There was just no escaping it. It's like, it just made you despise running. And it almost made me start to hate it because I, every time I'll go outside, you know, I was just, I couldn't even run like 10 minute miles without being absolutely out of breath. And it just made you despise going out on a run. So a lot of my runs were actually done indoors uh, during the summer. Um, but 
as fall started um creep as fall started uh, uh fall fall weather temperatures started to come in um i started transitioning more outdoors and then my body started to acclimate acclimate towards it and um so far i've been able to recover pretty well um from the humid and hot hot and humid conditions but only given that i'm not running at like 11 a.m. or 12 p.m. Yeah. Oh God. This is, this is like hard to listen to. Like I am so, <laughs> I have such an aversion to this kind of weather. Okay. So you're trained. So you went through a significant part of your training block was not dealing with this kind of weather condition because it was the, the winter. So even if it was you creeping into the seventies, the dew point was low, which means like it's, it's pretty doable. Uh, especially if you're used to the, used to that kind of temperature. So all of a sudden the weather starts to shift. Here comes the marathon. So. Come race day, you're going into it with a goal of roughly 3:30, which is you know right around eight minute pace. I know you know you had a really detailed post um, about exactly how you progress. I know you started you know it was around eight eight oh five eight ten pace to start the race and kind of hovering around there. Were you considering altering the plan based on the weather conditions or not? You know, like deep down, I knew I should have. Um, deep down, I knew I should have, but at the end of the day, like I knew that this was the race that this was the only race that I had on the calendar that I had my eye set on. I'm going to run 3:30, no matter what. Like I was just so focused on that goal. Like I had something to prove to myself. Like I'm going to run 3:30. Like I know I can do it. Like screw the weather. I know the weather sucks, but I'm gonna give it a shot anyways. But I just knew, like going in, like. Stepping outside, you're <laughs> like even getting to the car, like the car is already wet, like it just rained just because of the humidity. And I was already panicking. I was watching the weather all week. Um, and it kind of let me down a little bit because the week before the race, I looked on uh, the weather app and the weather app said it's going to be in the 60s. So, you know, like I had a smile on my face. I was like, 60s. All right, cool. I could do with 60 degrees, even though that may not be exactly optimal. Like I would rather be in the 50s, but I'm like, okay, I could do with 60s. 60s is good racing weather. And it slowly, the temperatures just started to slowly creep up and up and up every single day until race day, 77 degrees, 72 Two point hundred percent humidity at the race start, and um, you know the first mile in itself, like I, w- you know, first mile, you know, like um, I don't know what um, I have a Garmin, and it'll give you like that performance indicator. And when that performance in there came up and it said negative one, I freaked out inside. I was like negative one. All right, I don't one. have a garment. What does that mean exactly? <laughs> Walk me through that, that metric. Um, so Garmin has like a like a performance indicator that measures your that tracks your heart rate and compares it to the effort or the pace that you're going. And I guess it compares it to wh- how you've performed in the past. Um, so I remember when I was, I remember like in that first mile, I clocked like an 812 that first mile. And usually like I'll do my warm ups at like an 820 pace, like on my regular, on my regular running days. And like my, my heart rate would be at like 130, 135. When that performance indicator said negative one, I flipped the screen. My heart rate was at 160, like oh 166, God. 167. And I started freaking out. But, you know, I was so was that like, okay. weather or were you just like completely amped at the beginning of this race? 
I think it was a bit of both. Um, I definitely think it was a bit of both. Like I couldn't blame it all on weather in the beginning. Like I knew like I was just pumped up, like I was just ready to rock, ready to roll. But, you know, like just when that metric popped up, like deep down, like my heart kind of sunk. But, you know, like I just tried to ignore it and just kept moving, moving on. But I knew I should have adjusted my pace. But um, based on my race plan, I'd actually programmed the marathon as a workout in my watch. So when I ran the marathon, it wasn't just press start and go like it was actually programmed as a workout. Um, So I was like ticking off, you know, like I would have a 5k and then a little rest and my watch would give me alerts when I do those uh, splits. All right. So as you're progressing through like the first half of the marathon, um, by that, I mean like the first 13.1 miles, obviously you know, in terms of like effort level, that doesn't really feel like the first half, but as you <laughs> progress through the first 13.1 miles, how did it feel when you got to that point and how did that feeling compare to how you wanted to feel at that point? Oh man. I mean, by the 10 K point, I still felt pretty solid by 10 K, um, I was still, you know, I was breathing maybe a little bit harder than I should, but I still felt pretty solid. I knew that I can still hold that pace. Um, but once I hit the halfway point, it it really almost took me out as to how hard I had to work to maintain that pace versus what I expected it to feel like. Like in training, I felt like, okay, like in training when I would hit 13 miles, like I still felt, you know, I still felt good. Like I still felt like I could keep going. I could keep going at that pace. but on that day, on race day, when I hit the 13 mile mark, I said, oh man, like if I'm feeling like this halfway, there's no way I'm going to be able to maintain this for a whole nother 13.1 miles. And that scared me. Yeah, I can imagine. So what do you do with that fear? You know, to be honest, at that point, I really should have adjusted my pace. <laughs> I really should have adjusted my my pace. But, you know, I had, you know, wrote on a post, dare greatly. And I just took that and I said, you know what? This is really my only shot. I never really know what I'm capable of until I just do it. It was like even with the half marathon, when I ran the half marathon and had that PR, I never ran seven, like I never clocked like sub 740 miles for for that period of time. I just went with it, you know, and I went with it and it got me somewhere. And so when so I came to the marathon. Like, you would rather, you'd rather do something reckless than play it safe at that point yeah like at that point yeah like I felt like I don't know where this is gonna take me you know like I wasn't really thinking about anything else other than let me go with it and let me see where it takes me and it was a reckless decision because I knew I should have I knew I should have dropped my pace at least 30 or 40 seconds in order for me to at least maintain it for another you know maybe even another 10k but I still kept going and it was definitely a scary feeling and it bit me in the butt pretty bad. <laughs> All right. So when did kind of the wheels start to fall off a little bit? I definitely start to feel a little bit more labored at around mile 15, 16. Um, you know, the legs were moving fairly slow. It wasn't, you know, like I would never say like I really hit a wall, but the legs were just moving. It just took me a little bit more effort to get them going. You know, um, the sun, the sun was just high it, um, along A1A, along Colin, along A1A on the beach. There's absolutely no shade. Um, so you're pretty much just baking under there. Um, the sun was high. 
breathing was definitely a little heavy. I started to actually get like a, like a cramp in my diaphragm, like a cramp in my stomach from breathing. And, you know, I knew it was a little bit in trouble. And then the wheels definitely fell off at mile 18. That's when the wheels completely fell off and cramps took me to the ground. And that's when I, when, that's when I just broke down. All right. So this has happened to me. It's not fun. <laughs> Boy, is this not fun. Um, and the desire or the the attraction of just walking off the course can be not only really attractive, but, you know, truth be told, even after the fact, it can be viewed as like a completely logical and totally fine maneuver, right? Like instead of like just killing yourself and really wasting like the next, you know, two or three weeks because it's going to take you a long time to recover if you really completely bake yourself in this race, um, you know, taking a DNF isn't some sort of like scarlet letter, right? It, it can be a well-reasoned position after the fact. I know that's not what you did. So what about that race and your goals and your desire kept you running on that day? Ooh, like I remember, I remember just so vividly, like, like I was, I was, I was, as I was approaching mile 18, cramp took me to the ground. Um, I got on the curb and I started to stretch it out. I tried to take a few steps, cramps came back, tried to take a few steps, cramps came back and a police officer approached me and she said, are you okay? And I said, no, oh, fine. I'm, I'm just cramping. I'm cramping. I'm fine. She's like, are you sure? I said, yeah, you know, like I have no choice. It's a marathon, right? And she's like, no, you have a choice. I can call the cart right over and tell them to take you uh, back to the starting line. And to honest to God, like I really thought about it. I really sat there and for a split second, I thought, this is my chance. I can just have someone over and, and all of this would be over. And something in me just told me, no, like, just keep going. So, you know, like I said, no, it's okay. I'll keep going. And I probably didn't even make it, you know, 20 feet past there until I cramped up again and I broke down into tears and I called my mom. Um, I, call, I usually never take my phone when I race either. So I don't know if, you know, something told me to take my phone on this race, but I took my phone on my race and I called my mom. And the first thing I told her was, I don't think I'm going to make it. And she was like, what do you mean? Are you cramping? And I said, it, it's bad. Like, I can't move. And I just knew that whatever she had to say to me wouldn't change my mind or wouldn't change the decision. It was my battle to fight at that point. You know, like this was my race and it was my battle, but I just wanted to hear her voice. Like, I just needed some reassurance to know that it was going to be okay, no matter what she told me. And all these thoughts started to go in my mind like, oh, pros DNF all the time, people DNF all the time, you know, like this, I know, like, I'm not the only person that decided to call it quits. It's hot. It's humid. I know, you know, like, I'm not the only one. And all those thoughts started coming to my mind, like, you know, this could be the moment that all of this could just be over. And I can go home and take a nap. And then it just makes you realize like, okay, but if I keep going, it's still going to be over. The pain doesn't last forever. It's going to end at some point as long as I keep pushing forward. So I kept pushing forward anyways. I texted my coach and said, you know, like, I'm in bad shape. I don't know what to do. Like, I want to call it quits right now. And he just said, whatever this, you know, he just said, 
you know, try to shake it off, find whatever you can on the side of the road, roll out, roll out your muscles and let's see where it takes you. And one, I just kept putting one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other. And before I knew it, I was another mile down. And by that time I was already at like mile 20. And I thought to myself again, am I really going to call it quits when I just ran 20 miles? You know, and I just knew that decision was going to haunt me at the end of the day. If I went home and I just knew that I just ran 20 miles and I had just six miles left to go and I called it quits, like, what is that going to bring me? You know, and that was that mile 20 was also like another turning point in the race, because that's when um, I'd also met like another gentleman who was going to the same issues as me. You know, like we would try jogging a few steps and cramp would take us down and we'd have to go down to a walk, jog a few, walk, jog a few, walk. And we would just pass each other back and forth, back and forth. And it was almost like, it was almost like, okay, like, what are we trying to do here? Like, are we just trying to raise each other? Like, what are we trying to do? Until I finally caught up to him and I was just like, you know what? Hey, my name's Kim. What's your name? He was like, my name's Randy. I was like, let's work together. And he looked at me and he was like, all right, let's do it. And like, we carried each other through the last uh, 6.2 miles. And it was, you know, like it, w- it was definitely a big learning experience because meeting him really taught me that no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're facing, running is a community. And it taught me that you're not alone. You know, if you're going through a tough time, you're not alone. Someone is there going through it with you. And if you go through the challenge together, you'll go so much further than if you try to do it by yourself. Now, during that 6.2 with Randy, were, did your focus start to shift externally instead of just kind of like mulling with inside of you and just being completely internally focused and like the, the stew of negative emotions that must have been swirling? <laughs> it, it, absolutely. It's almost like something complete, like a complete 360. You know, for some reason, our, our, our walk became a jog and it became a run. And the pain that we are feeling just slowly, like it was still there, but it's almost like our attention wasn't on it anymore. We were like chatting, we were sharing experiences. We weren't focused, like we threw away the watch at that point, you know, like we weren't focused on the time anymore. We were really just focused on the moment of just getting to the finish line. And one thing led to another and it was like, okay, mile 21, mile 22, mile 23, yeah, we were hurting, but we weren't thinking about it anymore. Like the focus wasn't on the suffering. It wasn't really on the pain. It was just focusing on getting each other through that because I didn't want to let him down. You know, like I knew that I took away from his race as well because I said, let's work together. That means, no, we're going to do this together. Um, And I didn't want to slow him down. And I knew that he didn't want to slow me down. So we held each other accountable and it became of, okay, let's, we're really going to cross that finish line together no matter what it took. And these kind of races that really strip you to the bone can be a really emotional experience as well. Uh, Not for everybody, but I know it it was for me when I had this kind of race. Uh, Did you experience that? Oh, Oh, absolutely. Like this was a completely, completely different experience. Like, like it wasn't like my first marathon. And I had this conversation earlier with one of my coworkers because she also runs And um, she had asked me about my experience. And I said, this experience was so different because it didn't even feel like a race. I got so lost. Like, I just, I got so lost in, in, you know, 
so lost in paying attention to one single thing that I forgot to savor them, like cherish the moment and to really experience the race. Like my, I remember my first marathon, like I had an epiphany, like my first marathon, like it was just like, wow, I'm really doing this. I'm running a marathon. I'm racing a marathon. Like, and I remember that that happened to me at probably like mile 20, mile 21. Like it really hit me. Like I'm really doing a marathon, but this marathon, it was completely different. It felt like I got lost in it. Like I didn't feel like I enjoyed it because I got so caught up in one singular factor of a race that I didn't really experience it the way that I should have. Um, I don't know if that really makes any sense, but it, it was just a really weird feeling that didn't really feel like a race anymore. Um, that's like the best way I can put it. it. It was just a really weird feeling. All right. So once you cross the finish line, you almost, you had this like, seems you had these really contrasting emotions, right? Like the, the pride that comes with doing something incredibly hard and what you were able to do over those last six to eight miles was incredibly hard. It took a lot of toughness and grit and every emotion, uh, physical, mental, uh, and emotional to, to get through that. And that's worthy of being championed and honored. Um, at the same time, like you went into the race with certain goals and, you know, you finished at 415, you had a goal of 330. There's very good reasons why it didn't come to fruition. But like, it can be hard for us as runners to lose sight of the fact that we had certain goals and we had a really good training block and the race didn't go our way. Like, what's it been like for you in the days since that race? You know, dealing with both sides of the spectrum, which can both be, you know, pretty emotionally charged. Uh, th- this was very difficult. Um, I'll, I'll honestly and openly admit that I had a mental breakdown all of race day and probably most of yes, most of yesterday, most of the day after. And immediately following the race, um, I bursted into tears after crossing the line. Um, you know, I was I was so disappointed because part of me was like, how is it that I can do all of this in training? My training block went so well. I was hitting all these workouts, all these paces, no problem. This race, like, it shouldn't have been a problem for me to hit those paces. Like, w- like why? You know, like, I had all this why, why, why? And I was so upset. Um, I was so upset. And, you know, like, my friends came over and my mom came over and they just looked at me. They're just like, are you kidding me? Like, you just ran 26.2 miles. Like, why are you upset? And, you know, like my mom was like, you need to stop being hard on yourself. You need to start being kind to yourself. Like you just ran 26.2 miles when you, when you really wanted to quit a hundred times before that, you know, like you could have easily told the police uh, officer to call the car to call you over, but no, you finished. But deep down, like I was, I was just so upset. And then like another epiphany that I had was that, you know, like kind of made me feel a little bit emotional, you know, like when I called my mom at mile 18, it just made me really realize to cherish that moment because there's going to be times when I'm going through something hard and I'm going to want to call her and that voice won't be on the other line. And that really hit me because, you know, like there's sometimes like we, me and her may not always, you know, we may butt heads sometimes, you know, like I'm not like sometimes I can talk back. And that just made me realize to really cherish that moment because her voice was so reassuring. And I know at the end of the day, there's going to come a time in my life where I'm going to be struggling. I want to make that phone call and it's not going to be there. And that was just like a really big epiphany too, that just broke me down to the core. 
And um, it just really made me, you know, cherish that moment and to just really put your best effort, no matter what the circumstances are, you know, like you could have had the best race of your life the week before you could have had the best training block, you could have had, you know, every best situation possible leading up to the moment that you're in. But if you don't put forth your best effort in that moment, you're not going to have the outcome that you want. Um, and that's something that I realized too, you know, like I didn't put my best effort in some of those moments. Some of those moments just broke me down so much that I wanted to quit more than I wanted to keep going. And, you know, I just had to learn how to move on from that. But, you know, now today, like I, I feel better about it. Um, I feel like that race has taught me so much more and that I wouldn't even say it's a loss anymore. You know, like I remember like that day, like I posted, I was like, man, I failed. I lost like, like why? Like, I'm I'm like, I'm such a disappointment. Like I'm such a failure. Like how could I have not, how could I have not made my time go? You know, but now I realize like that race gave me so much more insight and new perspective into certain aspects of my life that were lost. Wow. This is a great way to end it. Uh, Thank you for really tying a bow on it because everything you just said there was right on the money. Uh, Kim, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing uh, everything that you did with such honesty and forethought and openness. I really appreciate it. And if someone wants to follow along with your training, how will you share your Instagram handle? Uh, This seems to be like a great place for people to follow along with what you're doing. Uh, You guys can follow me along at Kim Ermaza. Boom. See, there's not a lot of Kim Ermazas, I guess. Like I can't get, (laughs) I can't get that sort of thing. Like just Matt Chittum anywhere. I got to get the, do the underscores, some numbers at the end. You just Kim Ermaza. Boom. Done and only. (laughs) I love it. Kim, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was an absolute pleasure. No, thank you so much for having me, Matt. It was a great conversation. Kim, thank you so much for coming on the show. Always a blast to interact with you and talk with you. And she's getting back at it. We recorded this episode a couple weeks ago and she's wasting no time getting back into the mix. She is an extremely hard worker. Go check her out over on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I really appreciate it. This week over on Road to the Trials, we're gonna be doing a recap of the Trials Miles uh, race this past weekend. So just finished up last night. Boy, what a weekend it was down in Austin. We talked to Frank Laura and Kira D'Amato about their experiences doing that. So head over to Road to the Trials. That episode will probably be coming out on Wednesday. So uh, we were talking to Kira on Monday and Frank on Tuesday. Hopefully the pod will go out on Wednesday. That's the plan. So thank you so much for listening and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Surprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry I got.